responses to his word. And so let's respond to God's word by faith, by submission, if need be, by trembling before his word. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Amen. Father God, we come to you, and we desire that we might uh, grow more and more as we come to hear your word week by week and sing your word and pray your word, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth, Lord. And we, uh, by faith, receive it, and we pray that you would anoint my lips, enable me to uh, clearly articulate your word, and, Father, each one of us to have that word mixed with faith in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A first grader stood up in front of his class and began to give his speech, which uh, his assignment was, what I want to be when I grow up. And he said, I want to be a lion tamer. And there's going to be lots of fierce lions. And when I go into that cage, they're going to roar at me. And then he thought a bit, but mummy's going to be with me. <laughs> now, we don't always have mummy with us. And there are some fears that our mummies even are not adequate for. And uh, we want to continue from last week answering the question, what is it that can give us boldness like the early church had? Uh, the uh, message we looked at last week, we just began to look at three factors that uh, enabled the early church not to be overcome by fears, not to uh, withdraw from the world into a holy huddle, not to become a ghetto that would not make any impact. Uh, and I think that's a temptation in our own age, and it doesn't have to be major persecutions that make people just withdraw from fear. It can be just m slight intimidations, peer pressures, other things like that that can make us fearful and lose our boldness. And we saw that there were three things, the fellowship of suffering, verse 23, the fellowship of prayer, verses 24 through 30, and the fellowship of the Spirit, verse 31. Now, last week, we began to look at the fellowship of suffering, and it was only actually hinted at in our passage, but because there are so many passages coming up in the book of Acts that will not make sense if we don't understand that concept of the fellowship of sufferings, what I did is I took a little detour, and we went through a whole pile of scriptures trying to develop a theology of suffering. 
trying to understand what is it what is it that drives the church in china and in other underground places to have a totally different perspective on suffering uh, than we do and it by the way if you were not here last time i encourage you to get the tape from a uh, bear or cds i guess we have cds available now um, but to get that because if uh, you have not heard that there may be a lot that you're going to be missing out on today i'm assuming you've heard that and for visitors i'm sorry um, but uh, the understanding of the fellowship of sufferings uh, is going to help you a lot better understand what we're going to be talking about today the puritan john flabel said that our mystical union with christ is so real that when we are hungry, naked, and in prison, in some sense, not in every sense, but in some sense, Jesus is naked, is hungry, and is in prison. Uh, that's what Matthew 25 says. We looked at Acts chapter 9, and we saw that when Paul was persecuting the church, there was some sense in which Jesus himself was being persecuted uh, by the apostle Paul. And so we looked at quite a number of different scriptures that show in what ways it is that we share in the sufferings of Christ, how Christ shares in our sufferings. And because it's a concept that's a little bit difficult to wrap your brains around, I'm not even going to try to summarize what we said last week because I think I will fail. We almost have to cover quite a, a lot of territory to do that. But Flavel said that this union with Christ is supernatural, it is immediate, it is fundamental, it is efficacious. It enables Christ to enter into the uh, whole of our life. It enables us to enter into the whole of Christ's life, his glory, his joy, his victory, and yes, into his sufferings as well. That is why uh, it is not simply a legal concept when Ephesians says we have been caught up with Christ into the heavenlies and are seated with him. We're on his throne. That gives us not just something that's abstract, but it gives us an authority right now that many Christians fail to use or fail to adequately appropriate. Uh, and so we saw last week there was a fellowship, and then we saw uh, that there was a fellowship in his sufferings. Today I want to show that there was a fellowship of prayer. Verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, uh, the Greek word for with one accord is kind of hard to translate into the English language, and you'll, you'll see all kinds of translations trying to capture various facets of this word. Uh, uh, the Greek word is uh, homothumadon. It's a compound word made up of two Greek words. Uh, the uh, first word is hamas, which means the same or united together with, and thumos, which dictionaries say can mean the heart, the soul, the passions, the inner spirit on occasion. In fact, many times it's actually translated as anger, and the implication is that we're not just united together in prayer outwardly. The first word, a part of the word, indicates that. We are united together in prayer, but the second part indicates that our spirits are knit together in prayer as well and all that is involved in the human spirit the passions and the mind there is something that knits our hearts together and so i've just summarized that first clause there with the phrase the fellowship of prayer i think that is an accurate summary of what it means that they lifted their voice to god with one accord and i think it is significant that they they uh the the fellowship of prayer 
flows out of the fellowship of suffering that we looked at last week. Uh, those who have tasted of the supernatural fellowship of sufferings that we talked about last week have said that they cannot but pray for other people. It, it is something that drives them into prayer. Uh, we saw last week that Romans 9 verses 1 through 3 is just one small slice of what it means to be in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and the fellowship of sufferings with others. But it's one of many examples of how that drove Paul to prayer. Romans 9, 1 through 3, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. That's one kind of suffering. Continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He had so entered into this mystical union with Christ that the Spirit had given to him such a burden in evangelism, such self-sacrificing love that it was akin to the kind of love that Christ had when Christ was willing to be accursed from the Father so that we could be saved. And Paul indicates that this suffering drove him to prayer. Now he talks about other aspects of Christ's our union with Christ that are so joyous and so glorious that words can hardly express what he was experiencing. He says, this is really painful. This is something that was painful and it drove him to prayer. Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so my first point is we really can't pick and choose which aspects of our union with Christ we're going to be receiving. They come as a package deal. Um, if you avoid Paul's life verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if we avoid that, we are not going to be the kind of prayer warriors that the New Testament calls us to be. It will be impossible to uh, enter into that fully. Vincent says, being in Christ involves fellowship with Christ at all points. His life, his spirit, his suffering, his death, and his glory and I would add his burden for intercession. It, it, it draws us into that. Those who have entered into the fellowship of the saints have had Jesus pour out upon them the spirit of prayer and supplications. And I think this is what it means in Jude when it calls us to pray in the spirit. This is what it means in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 when it speaks of prayer and supplication in the spirit. And so the fellowship of prayer is involved in our union with Christ. It grows in proportion to the experience of the fellowship of our sufferings and his sufferings. And it's an inward passion which many people have described as a prayer burden. What do they mean by that? Well, they mean it's just like a weight that weighs down upon them and cannot be relieved apart from prayer. That is what a prayer burden is. And that may be one way of translating that word homothumadon. Um, united in one burden or united with one heart or with one passion. Uh, there's various ways people have translated it. And by the way, if, uh, some people get a little bit nervous about the whole concept of passions. But you look up the second part of that compound word, thumos, in the book of Revelation, almost always it's translated with a lot of passion. In fact, most of the time with anger. Now, I'm not saying anger is at the heart of this word. It is not. But what I am saying is you cannot take or extract out of this word 
the, the burden, the passion, the inward drive that God has given for uh, prayer. It's something inward that the Spirit produces. Now, let me make one more note on the nature of this fellowship of prayer before we dive into the rest of the passage. It does not mean people going crazy. Okay, I've been in some prayer meetings where everybody's praying at the top of their lungs at the same time, and some people are falling over, and I'm leaving. I'm out of there, you know, get real nervous about that kind of stuff. No, this is done decently and in order. And uh, um, uh, they're not all talking at the same time. Now, some people might object, and they might say, now, now, wait a minute, it says here very clearly that they raise their voice with one accord, which means they're all praying at the same time. And actually, that is not the case. Uh, they were all in agreement, but there was one voice praying. Everything was done decently and in order. So let me read that um, clause again, and let me show you where the plurals and the singulars are found in the Greek. So when they heard that, they, that's plural obviously, raised, that's a plural verb, and then the Greek literally says they raised a voice to God with one accord and said, and that too is a plural verb, they said. Now the uh, Greek is quite clear. There is one voice that is speaking, but all were involved in raising that voice to God. So an apostle probably was leading in prayer. The others were agreeing. Although every person there was praying, yet it wasn't a whole pile of different prayers that were being offered. This particular prayer was being offered up to God word for word. Probably the way that the verbal agreement uh, happened is that this guy was praying and people were offering up verbal, audible amens to what he was praying, okay, so that there was an agreement of faith and they were taking this prayer as being their own prayer and were offering it up to the Lord. And over and over again in the Scripture, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, it calls upon us to give our audible amen to the parts of the worship, to the preaching, to the, to the, uh, the, the, um, the prayers that are offered up. And there is no way you can say amen to what somebody else is praying if you can't hear, you can't understand, because there's, you know, a thousand voices out there, everybody's saying a different thing. Um, let me just give you one example. 1 Corinthians fourteen sixteen says that unless tongues are translated, they should not be prayed publicly because there needs to be a unity of mind. It says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? So the fellowship of prayer implies a unity of understanding in its very definition. In fact, there is one translation that uses the word mind in this passage. It's just really hard to capture everything that's, that's there. And so there's one voice who leads in prayer, and that's really a leadership function. And then there is the whole congregation lifting that prayer to heaven with their agreement. It became their prayer. Their mind was engaged in this. Their, their passions were engaged in this. They, they had a united burden, a united desire uh, for this cause that was being offered up. And I noticed that I didn't put the definition into the outline. Let me just quickly read it. I wrote it in my margin here of this fellowship of prayer is a spirit-given urge to pray that unites believers with a common burden, with agreement in mind and faith, 
and a shared passion for the cause of Christ. Let me read that again. A spirit-given urge to pray that unites believers with a common burden, with agreement in mind and faith, and a shared passion for the cause of Christ. Now, with that as a background, I, I want to go through the prayer and show how it implies other aspects of our fellowship with Christ and with each other. First word in this prayer is a word that shows a fellowship of submission and of loyalty to the Father. We share a common master, and this gives to us a common sense of our submission to him, of our loyalty to him in that prayer. The first word not the usual word for Lord. The Greek is despotes. It's the strongest word in the Greek language for Lord. And let me read from a couple of dictionaries on the definition. One dictionary says, despotes expresses the arbitrary, unlimited exercise of power without any real conditions. Another dictionary says, one who holds complete power or authority over another, one who owns and or controls the activities of slaves, servants, or subjects with the implication of absolute and in some instances arbitrary jurisdiction. Now it's not by accident that they start this prayer with that word here because in effect what they are saying is, Lord, you are the master, you are the sovereign, and we are willing to submit to whatever it is that you throw against us. We are not going to get bitter. We are not complaining. You are the master, or you're the potter, or we're the clay, right? We are servants of the Most High God, and our desire is in praying this is not to get rid of our discomfort. Our primary concern is not our comfort, but it's your glory. It's your honor. It's the, your cause that we are praying about. You are the one who is all important in this equation as we pray. And when the Spirit moves our hearts in prayer, our prayers show submission and show loyalty. Secondly, this prayer shows a fellowship of faith. Lord, you are God. <laughs> I'm afraid that in the church of today, it's not always entirely convinced of that fact. Yeah, they profess that God is God. But you know, our attitudes, our emotions, our actions, even many times, act as if we really don't believe that God is God. Uh, many times we think that it's all up to us, and when we don't feel up to it, we become extremely discouraged, downhearted. Uh, there's other ways in which we deny this faith. One is just by not praying at all. Prayerlessness is an attitude that says, I really don't need God. That's why I'm not praying to Him. I can handle this all on my own. But he says, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. It might look like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders are in control and that God is not in control. But by faith, they recognize that is not the case. God has made absolutely all things, including those enemies. They could not even utter a breath of threat against these disciples without the Father giving them that breath because he is the despot over whom everything, over, and he is in control over all things. Therefore, they had a total confidence in his ability to handle this situation. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at two principles of prayer when we were doing a, a survey through Acts of uh, different uh, con uh, passages of prayer. And one of the principles that we looked at is that 
we are to be praying not so much for victory as praying from a stance of victory that has already been achieved. And it makes all the difference in the world as to whether we're praying through faith or whether we're coming at it hoping and wishing but really not having faith. And we have every reason to be praying from a stance of victory because God the Father has ordained the victory in eternity past Jesus has died and purchased everything that is needed for that victory. His resurrection guarantees the victory, and the Holy Spirit is now applying that victory through the church. And so we've got every reason to be, uh, to be encouraged as we come to the Lord in prayer. And, of course, uh, this whole prayer shows this fellowship of faith from beginning to end. Now, this is one of the reasons why we have to pray in the Spirit is because he's the giver of faith, Right? Third, this prayer shows a fellowship of battle. We have a common general, common enemy, and that means if we are united in fellowship, we need to have a common action of spiritual warfare. Let's read verses 25 through 27, continuing on there. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. There's a huge war going on between Christ and Satan. And we might be tempted to think, you know, he's sovereign. He's got authority over all things. He's not only man, he is God. He can handle it. And uh, why do we have to be involved? You know, after all, the Father always hears the Son's prayers, and He's praying as well, right? He's interceding, so why do we need to be involved? Why not just let go and let God? We could take a little bit of time of relaxation. Why do we have to be involved? But you know what? The Spirit of God will not let that happen in our lives. Uh, The Spirit of God not only pushes us closer into the sufferings of Christ, but makes us participants in the warfare of Christ. Those who pray in the Spirit, cannot leave the battle alone. They cannot. They have a fellowship with Christ in battle. They have a fellowship with other saints in battle. And that's one of the reasons why the language of warfare is so frequently used in connection with prayer. Romans 15, 30. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me. Now, one version has that you, you, that you unite with me in earnest wrestling. Another has to be my allies in the fight in prayers to God for me. And so Paul not only saw prayer as being warfare, but he said it is a fellowship of warfare with Christ, a fellowship of warfare where we are in fellowship with uh, the other soldiers. And the critical phrase in Romans 15.30 is that this fellowship of warfare was through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit. It's something that God draws us into supernaturally. But that battling in prayer implies that there is a cause that we are battling for and that that cause is bigger and greater than we are. Bigger and greater than our agendas, bigger and greater than our own personal needs, And the cause is Christ. Even though the church is the one being persecuted here, verse 27 says that it's ultimately about Jesus and about his cause. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now that does not exclude our needs, 
Uh, obviously, he delights in answering our prayers when we offer up our needs before the Lord. But what we need to make sure that we do is we have our needs and our prayer requests have some bearing upon the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give you an example. You need a car. Your car is broken down. You need to have a car for transportation. Rather than just praying for a car, pray for a stewardship trust and say, Lord, you know, in order to affect, uh, in order to be able to serve you effectively here, I'm willing to be with or without a car, but in order to uh, serve you more effectively, I believe that a car is what I need at this point. And I believe that having this car would advance the cause of your kingdom. And here are some of the reasons why I want to use this as a stewardship trust. Here are some of the reasons why I think it would glorify you. And so you're taking those same needs, but you're doing it in a much more God-centered way uh, when you pray. Notice that even the cause of Christ here is interpreted as serving the ultimate cause of the Father because he is called the servant of the Father. Is he not? He's called the servant, and Jesus has been anointed by the Father with a calling, which means he is serving. We're called by Christ, but Christ is called by the Father. And because Christ served the Father's interests in absolutely everything that he did, and his goal was the Father's call, a call every prayer of Jesus was answered. He always prayed according to the will of of the Father. And I think we can take our cue from this and make sure that we are God-centered in our prayer life. Uh, God wants us to bring all of our needs to Him, but we need to bring them in a way where we're seeing how those needs are tied in with the cause of Christ and further the cause of Christ. We see them as uh, being uh, a cause that's bigger and greater than us. Now, how do we do that? Point number five is obviously we need the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit works through means, and one of the means that he works with, through is the Scriptures. And this guy has obviously memorized Psalm 2, and it's ready and access for him to be able to pray. And I think in the same way, we need to memorize the Scriptures, which is one of the most powerful tools that the Holy Spirit uses, and to have our prayers anchored in the Scriptures, in its promises, in its commands, in the character of God, saturating our prayers uh, with the Word of uh, the Lord. And I speak of this as being the fellowship of Scripture. It's one of the most fundamental things that we share in common with other Christians. And, of course, sharing is another translation for fellowship. It's the Scripture alone that can enable us to be united in any of the other things that we're talking about in the ser sermon. And so always be suspicious of any movement in the church that puts down to the side the Scripture or doesn't want to talk about doctrine. It says, oh, doctrine divides, you know. Let's just love one another, but they don't allow the Scripture to define what love is. No, that, that is not the way that the Spirit of God works. <coughs> scripture... If, if it says that if our prayers are to get past the ceiling, to be heard by God, they have to be prayed according to the will of God. How do we know the will of God? We're not guessing out there. He's given us his will and his word. So if our prayers are to get past the ceiling, they have got to be grounded in the scriptures. And um, 
if the Spirit of God is driving us into prayer, He is not going to make us ignore the Scriptures. He gave the Scriptures. He loves the Scriptures. And he, when He moves us into that, it's going to be manifested in a fellowship of Scripture, an agreement together of the one thing that cannot be mistaken, the Bible. In fact, I've had some great times of fellowship and prayer with other believers whom I'm quite doctrinally different from, but because they were willing to pray the Scriptures, we were able to have great fellowship and prayer and be in great agreement. And so I, I, I think this is just an absolute necessity for, for our prayers. Verse 28 speaks of the fellowship of purpose, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined uh, to be done. Now, certainly our prayers can at times be confused. Maybe yours aren't. Mine are sometimes confused. I don't always know what I should pray for as I ought. And in Romans, Paul talks about that. And he says, well, that's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit has been given within us to be an intercessor from within us, perfecting our prayers, enabling us to intercede as we ought to do. And so I am not saying under this point that we're going to always understand all of the Father's purposes when we are praying. We won't. There's no way that we could. But when the Spirit of God drives us into this fellowship of prayer, we are going to be absolutely convinced of this, that God is sovereign and He has a purpose for everything. We're going to be totally convinced of that. This is one of the reasons why J.I. Packer says that all Arminians are Calvinists when they are on their knees. Now, I would slightly correct that, and I would say that many Arminians are Calvinists when they are on their knees because I've heard some absolutely blasphemous prayers coming from the mouths of some Arminians who are in the openness of God theology movement. In fact, I remember when I was up in Bible school, we were, uh, we were kneeling in prayer around a circle, and I just involuntarily moved sideways when this one guy started praying and saying that uh, he realized that God had no hands or feet except for our hands or feet, and he couldn't do anything unless the people were willing to cooperate, and he felt so bad that things were, get, were getting done, and he was going to try harder to do the things God was not able to do. Now, I moved sideways involuntarily because I think I sensed this guy needed to be fried, you know, and God's patient, and he did not. But I was an Arminian at that time myself. I never heard of such a thing. The openness of God theology believes that God does not and cannot foreknow the future that he makes mistakes sometimes, he's blindsided, he sometimes has to change his plans, that he is growing along with his uh, world that he created, and I, that is an absolute heresy. It, it is a totally different view of God. They do that in the name of trying to have a, a more personal God than they think the historic God has been portrayed to be, but it is a different God than the God of Scripture, and I cannot have fellowship with a person like that. I cannot agree in the fellowship of, uh, of prayer with this person because how can you be... It's like you're praying against God. Uh, if you do not believe that, there is, there, there, that God's sovereign purposes, that He is in control, I think, why even bother praying to Him? God knows the future, He plans the future, He is not mistaken, He is not blindsided, and Christian prayers need to be confident in that. When we are praying without at least some fellowship in God's purpose for this universe, confident that He has a plan, 
then it's an indication we're not praying in the Spirit. Or at least it's not the Holy Spirit. We might be praying in some other spirit, but the fellowship of prayers is something that only the Holy Spirit can produce. Uh, you cannot be in fellowship with God's sovereign purposes and enter into fellowship and prayer with those who deny God's sovereign purposes. I mean, it's just like praying against God. Now, verse 29 speaks of a fellowship of calling. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, these people who were praying this prayer saw themselves as being servants of God rather than God being a servant who was at their beck and call. And I tell you, that sense of calling from God changes the way you pray. In asking for boldness to speak God's word, they saw themselves as being ambassadors of God to this world who must speak. They were fearful, they needed boldness. Who must speak to this world? Now, sometimes it's not an easy thing to be an ambassador. Uh, David sent some ambassadors to the kingdom of Amnon, or Ammon, I guess it's called. Um, and the reason he sent ambassadors is because, because King Nahash had died. And King Nahash had been rather good to David. And so he was sending these ambassadors to bring comfort and say, you know, we're sorry that this has happened. Bring comfort to the son who was now king. Well, this son took these ambassadors, humiliated them, shaved off half their beards, cut off their clothes so their buttocks were uh, re revealed and sent them on their way. They were greatly humiliated. Now, here's the encouraging thing, though, about being an ambassador. Any action that was done against these ambassadors was done against King David, and David, therefore, went to war because this was an attack against King David, right? And in the same way, if we are ambassadors of the God Most High, we can be assured any persecution that comes against us is an attack against the God Most High. If we have this sense of calling, it's going to make us so we're not so much feeling sorry for ourselves as realizing, Lord, this is an attack against you. We want your honor lifted up. Here are people persecuting your cause, and we pray that you would act on behalf of your cause. Hear their threats. And do something, Lord. It's the same prayer, but it, it, it makes it God-centered. It's a fellowship of calling. In effect, it's saying, we understand what our purpose in this world is for. And it's not just so that we can live selfishly and comfortably in this life. Our whole purpose and goal is to serve Him. And so our whole prayers need to take on that God-centered perspective. And then finally, there is the fellowship of the Spirit, verses 30 through 31. <clears throat> he says, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, we've already looked at these verses some over the last three weeks, but I do want to uh, make three more comments relative to this fellowship of the Spirit. The first comment is that the fellowship of the Spirit is not a static thing. In other words, not something that stays the same, nor is it just a one-time event that we never experience then in the rest of our life. No, it grows and it wanes. Just as our fellowship with other human beings can grow and wane, actually it can be choked off completely. Paul warns us that our fellowship with the Spirit can also 
suffer in that way. We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. And so he says we need to continually get back to the source of those renewed fillings. In other words, it's a dynamic relationship. Our relationship with our parents, with our siblings, with our friends can grow, and our relationship with the Spirit uh, can grow as, as well. It was the Spirit who had already ushered them into. It's not as if they didn't have the Spirit yet. The Spirit had already ushered them into the fellowship of sufferings, had already ushered them into the fellowship of prayer, and now was ushering them into a renewed depth of relationship with Him. And so the first thing is it's a dynamic relationship that can grow or it can recede. Second, we see that we can be filled multiple times. Just take Peter, for example. Acts 2.4 is the first time that Peter is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But in Acts 4.8, Peter is again filled with the Spirit. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them. Then in Acts 4.31, since Peter is a part of the group and they're all filled, well, simple logical deduction says that Peter is filled here for a third time. Now, <clears throat> many people think that this filling is a one-time event Whereas the scripture says, no, it is a blessing that can happen. You don't just have a, a first blessing or a second blessing. You can have a third, a hundredth, you know. It can go on over and over again. The third thing that we see here is that the Spirit is sovereign in this relationship. I've talked to a number of people who have insisted that, and some of you have heard the same thing, have insisted that any time the word filling is used in the New Testament, there is always prophetic speech that comes out of the person's mouth or tongues which they say is a form of prophetic speech there's always this miraculous prophetic speech and they say that's the way it is today and I, I, that is absolutely not true in verse 31 you see two tangible effects of this filling place was shaken they're given boldness but if you keep reading verses 32 through 37 which we're going to look at next week shows that there are several other ways in which this filling was manifested. Now, one thing to remember, the shaking, this is the only time that this shaking is mentioned in the book of Acts. It's not repeated. Certainly, Acts 2.41 shows tongues as a result, but tongues is not a result every time a person is mentioned to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 9.17 shows healing, but there isn't healing every time that a person is filled with the Spirit. In fact, in Acts 13, verse 52 the only evidence that those disciples were filled with the Spirit is that they had joy in the face of persecution. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is that we delight to sing to the Lord, worship the Lord from our hearts with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And he goes on to say that we... Give thanks to God for all things, and thirdly, that we submit to one another. Now, does it take supernatural power to make us joyfully submit to one another and to give thanks to God, not only in all circumstances, but for all circumstances? Well, obviously, yes, it does. And the point is that the Holy Spirit fills us in order that we may have everything we need for that particular moment. If the situation does not call for a miracle for God's glory, then we're not going to get a miracle. And to expect a miracle every time that there is a filling with the Holy Spirit is just to set yourself up for disappointment. And so keep in mind that in Acts 4, 
healing signs and wonders that they prayed for in verse 30 yes that is one possible evidence of filling but uh, there's no mention of healing being given at this particular time but verse 31 the boldness the gift of boldness is an equally valid manifestation of the spirit the spirit can do whatever he wants he is sovereign he can give miraculous evidences non-miraculous he may just give you an inward joy that nobody else even sees until they realize well how come this guy is still joyful when he is being persecuted god is sovereign in his distribution of the holy spirit in his lives but we can glory in the fact that when we have the fellowship of the spirit the spirit takes us and unites us to everything christ has purchased for us remember we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ jesus the word fellowship means sharing so christ shares with us his whole life we share with each other the life of christ and as we come to know christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and the fellowship of prayer and the fellowship of the holy spirit we have everything that we need to be able to be bold in the face of persecution discomfort and other things that might otherwise drive us to clam up or to go away now, brothers and sisters your need of the hour and of every hour is to have what paul commanded in ephesians 5:18, to be filled with the spirit and by that spirit to enter into the fellowship of christ and of his saints amen father god we thank you for your word and the comfort and the encouragement that it is to us and i pray that our lives would be conformed to those scriptures as we go passage by passage through the book of acts father may this book come alive to us may it be an encouragement to us and father may we be the stronger in our spiritual warfare as a result of having heard it in our relationship with you in our fellowship i pray that we would be conformed to the image of christ that we would know jesus more and more and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death may you receive all of the praise and the honor in christ's name amen